I want you to turn with me, if you will, this morning to Hebrews chapter 10. And for an 84-year-old man, you know, to speak four times, it's not all that easy, but uh, I'm with sympathetic people, so put up with the old man if you can. <laughs> all right. Down through the centuries, the Bible students and Bible scholars have been asking the question, who wrote Hebrews? Some said Apollos wrote Hebrews. Others say Barnabas wrote Hebrews. Went so, went so far as to say none of these men wrote Hebrews. We believe that a woman wrote Hebrews. But I'm going to tell you who is the author of the Epistle of the Hebrews this morning. The author of the Epistle of the Hebrews was a Hebrew, writing to Hebrews, trying to get those Hebrews to quit acting like Hebrews. <laughs> but that's about as far as I'm going to go. But you say, who do you think is the real author? The real author of this book is the same as the author of every book in the Bible, the Holy Spirit of God. We do believe this morning, don't we, that the Bible is the Word of God. It's the only thing in the world that's living. Everything else is dying, but the Word of God is living. And if the Word of God, if it's not the Word of God, I am not in duty bound to obey it. And if I do not obey it, I am not a sinner. I am a criminal if I disobey the laws of men, but I am only a sinner as I disobey the law and the will of Almighty God. So we do believe that this Bible that you hold in your hands is the Word of God. It is unique in its content and absolutely final in its authority. All right, I want you to turn with me, if you will, to chapter 10 of the Epistle to the Hebrews. If you have a Schofield reference edition of the Bible, that's on page 1299. <laughs> and if you don't have a Schofield reference edition of the Bible, I don't have any sympathy for you. <laughs> for the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. The law was simply a shadow of good things to come, but it was not the very image. Therefore, they could never make anybody perfect that ever brought a sacrifice. Solomon offered 120,000 sheep at the dedication of the temple. He offered 22,000 oxen. No worshiper, no Israeli living in his tent could ever go up to Jerusalem and offer a bullock on that big altar and then go back to his wife and say, you know, that sin that has been bothering me through the years, it doesn't bother me anymore. I just offered a perfect sacrifice. There's no such thing as a perfect sacrifice. Of all the sacrifices they offered, could never make the comers thereunto perfect, for then would they cease to have been offered, because if the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. And do you think you could remember something for about 20 minutes? Verse 3, in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Year after year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, year after year and century after century, we're always remembering these things. There is a remembrance again made of sins every year. The next verse says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Not all the blood of beasts and Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or take away its stain, but Christ the heavenly Lamb takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of richer blood and nobler name than they. 
our souls look back to see the burden thou didst bear while hanging on the accursed tree and know our load was there. Believing, we rejoice to see the curse remove and bless the Lamb with cheerful voice and sing redeeming love. And this chapter just naturally falls apart, as you'll see. You'll have some words that have to do with the will of God. Then you have some words that have to do with the work of Christ. And then some words that have to do with the witness of the Holy Spirit. So I just want you to turn uh, to verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. And if you go back to the 40th Psalm and verse 7, you'll have the same words. Lo, I come to do, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. I do know there's a library in heaven. And apparently the psalmist was quoting from that library in heaven when he said, I come to do thy will, O God. And here the Holy Spirit uses it again. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. And if I were to look and say, why did the Lord Jesus come into the world? Someone over here said, well, I don't know much about the Bible, but I know the, I know the answer to that. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And somebody over here says, well, I believe that. But there's another verse in John chapter 1. No man hath seen the Father at any time, but the only begotten of the Father, the one who dwells in the bosom of the Father, he has come to show him forth. And you might come out with a lot of uh, different reasons from the Bible why he came into this world 2,000 years. He's been here. Why he came. All of these are involved in the fact that he came to do the will of God. He said, I always do those things which please my Father. At least on two occasions, maybe three, we hear the Father speaking from heaven, said, there he is. There he is, the root out of dry ground. There is a tender plant in whom is all my pleasure, in whom is all my desire. And your salvation is only important as it relates to his doing the will of God. From the moment of Bethlehem until he expired on the cross, he never swerved to the left or the right. He always did the will of God. I used to go to Ocean City, New Jersey in the summertime because they had a Bible conference there. And in those old days, I used to go to the Bible conference about every year. But I had another reason for wanting to go to Ocean City. I had a friend by the name of William Bryson. He was from Scotland. He came to faith in R.A. Torrey's ministry in Scotland. He was a ship's carpenter, but he never spent less than four hours a day studying the Bible. And I loved to be around William Bryson because I was sitting in the boat one day, Ocean City, and we were trying to catch flounders. Excuse me, this is an Old Testament prophet. But uh, we were trying to catch flounders, but I wasn't interested in catching flounders. I was interested in pulling big gobs of truth out of him. And he looked at me and said this, which is worth remembering. He said, Roy, to consciously do the will of God once is worth living a whole lifetime. To know that as a man or a woman, you were doing the will of God in God's way and in God's time the thrill that accompanies that. Have you ever had that experience, to know that you were doing the will of God? 
The thrill that accompanies it is worth living a whole lifetime. But think of what it must have meant to the Lord Jesus. He said he is spoken of as being anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. I know he was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but he was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows so that the Father could say, This one, all my delight is in him. No other person has ever taken that place but him. So he was here to do the will of God. And I only wish that I could get everybody here to believe the verse, the words in verse 9. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. Let me repeat that. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. That's the purpose of God in election. A lot of people are concerned about predestination and election and foreordination and all of that. But this is the purpose of God in election. The purpose of God in election is that the elder shall serve the younger. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. For instance, he takes away the first Adam. He brings another Adam. He takes away the first man. He brings in the second man. Cain was not the second man. Now, don't ask me where Cain got his wife because I'm not able to tell you. (laughs) He taketh away Cain that he may bring Abel. He taketh away uh, Ishmael that he may bring Isaac. He taketh away Esau that he might bring in Jacob. He taketh away Aaron that he might bring his younger brother, Moses. He taketh away, um, let's see, he taketh away the covenant of law, that he may bring in the covenant of grace. Do you love grace? I'm sure you do. The best definition I ever heard of grace is that grace is God assuming all of guilty man's responsibility and doing it with such infinite perfection and finality that it never needs to be done again. I've forgotten how many times the word grace is found, but uh, uh, about 38 times in the Old Testament and 128 times in the New Testament. And the first mention of the word grace is that Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And in the last verse of the last chapter of the last book in the Bible, you have the last reference to the word grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So it begins with grace and ends with grace. Grace is never mentioned in Matthew. Grace is never mentioned in Mark. Only mentioned one time in Luke. But the law came by Moses but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. He's going to take away the first earth. He's going to bring in new earth. He's going to take away the first heavens. He's going to bring in new heavens. When you were born the first time, you were born wrong. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and they which are in the flesh cannot please God. When you were born the first time, you were born wrong. That's the reason we have so much trouble with you. And that's the reason you have so much trouble with yourself. That's why the Lord Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born of the, of the water and the spirit. And Peter said, of his own will, begat he us with the word of truth. We're all saved in exactly the same way. Our experiences vary, but we're all saved when we believe what the Bible has to say about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I was 18 when I came to faith. I can't say, like maybe some of you could say, that you resisted and rejected and rejected, and finally you closed in on the mercy of God. The first time I heard the gospel, I believed it. I went to a Swedish congregational church, and I was confirmed when I was 13 years old, I think. Um, 
I was the only one in the class that didn't join the church. For pity's sake, I didn't know what a Christian was, but whatever they were, I knew I wasn't. So I wouldn't, and I'm sure glad that I didn't. Uh, because when I was 18, on January 27, 1933, at about 9.30 at night, a woman who was 68 years of age explained to me who Jesus Christ was and what he had done for me. And the first time I heard it, I believed it. And um, that's been a long time ago since uh, I discovered America. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, you must be born again. Of his will, own will begat he us with the word of truth. So he taketh away the first nature, and he gives us a new nature. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Now, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And I hope that before the day is over, or before the weekend is over, that you will take time to go over these words that you find here. And, uh, but now I'd like to have you turn to verse 11. And every priest standeth. I have a Bible talk I give sometimes on the house without a chair. And you know what I'm talking about, don't you? The tabernacle. I'm not exactly sure that it was ever the will of God that the temple should ever be built because the temple is never mentioned in Hebrews. The tabernacle is. And it's a house where the priests ministered, but they had um, no chairs. It's a house without a chair. If you say the tabernacle, you notice that the first thing is a big, wide gate that seemed to say, whosoever will, let him come. There's never a sinner so far from God but that Jesus can bring him home. There are no hard cases for the grace of God. And so uh, that wide gate, and then when you stepped a little bit further, you saw a big, brazen altar. And that's when they offered the sacrifices on that big, brazen altar. And then when you went a little bit further, you saw a laver. Uh, I don't know what it looked like because there are no dimensions given in the Bible what it looked like. I do know what it was made of. It was made of the looking glasses of the women. The men wouldn't give theirs up, but the women gave theirs up. And then they had water in that laver. And you remember they drank of that rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. When the, uh, was that the 17th chapter of Exodus? when God opened uh, that flinty rock and brought water out for them. And Christ said, If any man thirst, let him be unto me a drink. Come unto me and, and drink. And then uh, the priests had to wash every time they went in and every time they came out. Then the next thing was a room. It was called the holy place. And when you stepped in there, you looked to the right, and there was a table with 12 loaves of bread on it, the showbread. And then on the left was the menorah. And right in front of you, that was a golden menorah. And uh, then in front of you was an altar of incense. But those are the three pieces of furniture in the holy place. And then a big black veil, which was rent on the day that the Lord Jesus died. wish I had time to talk to you about the four things that were rent when Jesus died. The high priest rent his garment. That's the only time you ever saw the two high priests meeting, the priests of the Old Testament and the priests of the New Testament. This one had to go. Because the Bible says the priest shall not rend his garment lest he die. But this one abides a priest forever. But anyway, you had that big, big, thick veil which was rent when the Lord Jesus died. In the midst, from the top to the bottom. And then in the holiest of all, there was one piece of furniture. And that was a golden ark of the covenant. In which were kept the law and the table, uh, the pot of manna. 
and also Aaron's rod that budded. And that's where the high priest went twice a year, once for himself and once for the people. He sprinkled the blood on the ground and then on that mercy seat, that golden slab. But you could go from the beginning to the end, all kind of furniture, but no chairs. Every priest standeth to show that his work was never done. If you had a friend who was a priest and you went to see him to talk about a real estate deal, he'd say, listen, I'd like to talk to you, but I have 30 minutes more on my job here. If you just go over there and sit down and rest, I'll be glad to be with you. He could never say that. Every priest standeth. He could never sit down because his work was never done. But now the Holy Spirit loves to teach by contrast. You go back to uh, Romans, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Holy Spirit loves to teach by contrast. But this man, and 35 times in the New Testament, you have the Lord Jesus spoken of as this man. How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? I used to have a talk that I'd give to students on why Jesus didn't go to school. I don't give it anymore. Too many dropouts. And, uh, but uh, how knoweth this man letters, having learned? Be it known unto you, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Thirty-five times you have him designated as this man to distinguish him from all of the rest of the sons of man. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, comma, put the comma there, not after the word forever, because you know the way we got punctuation marks and chapters in the Bible? They were put in there by these horseback riding preachers. And when the horse would stumble a little bit, they'd make a punctuation mark. When the horse would fall down, they'd make a chapter. And that's the reason you got them. But in the Roman Catholic Bible, in the Russian Bible, in JND's new translation, it has it read this way. This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, comma, forever sat down on the right hand of God. Four times in the epistle of the Hebrews you have the Lord Jesus sitting down. He sits down in chapter 1 because of who he is. He sits down in chapter 10 because of what he has done. In contrast to the priest, who could never offer a sacrifice or would uh, take away sins, which can never take away sins, but here he offers one sacrifice for sins and then forever sat down on the right hand of God. If you'll take your concordance, the Strong's Concordance, you'll find that there are several words for forever, translating the English word forever. This particular word is only found twice, once here and once in verse 14. And... Um, so he has forever sat down. But I can hear some of you saying right now, I've just read the book of Acts. And when Stephen was being stoned, he looked up through and saw the glory of God, and he said, I see Jesus. And what was he doing? Standing. Sure. He was standing ready to receive Stephen. Or if you breathe your last today, if you kick, you know, there's a difference in fainting and dying. When you die, you kick the bucket. When you faint, you just turn a little pale. But uh, Well, I have one woman down here, and she's getting something out of the message anyway. But anyway, uh, if you were to breathe your last today, he'll stand to receive you too. You'll have an abundant entrance. No one gets in by the skin of his teeth. There'll be an abundant entrance when you leave this world. All right, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, 
forever sat down at the right hand of God. So we've had some words that have to do with the will of God. We've had some words that have to do with the work of Christ. And I know that I'm looking at people, and many times you've thanked God for the finished work of Christ, haven't you? Have you ever thanked God for the unfinished work of Christ, what he's doing for you right now? He finished the work his father gave him to do. When he cried, it is finished. I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. At the very beginning, when he said, my hour has not yet come, and many times he said, my hour has not yet come, yet when he comes to John chapter 17, it's the son talking to the father, he said, Father, the hour is come. And he has finished the work, never needs anything to be done, but his unfinished work, right now he represents you before the father. Because there's someone else that appears before the father. I read in Revelation of uh, his majesty, the devil, who is the prince of this world and the god of this age, who accuses the saints day and night. But you have a lawyer that never lost a case. Wouldn't you like to have a lawyer that never lost a case? I talked to a judge the other day, and he said to me, uh, you know the best way to keep a lawyer from drowning? I said, tell me. He said, shoot him before he hits the water. (laughs) But you have a lawyer that never lost a case. What though the accuser roar of ills that I have done? I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah findeth none. The only thing your lawyer has to do is to raise his hands in the presence of God. And when God sees those wounds, not scars, he has no scars, but he still has wounds. When God the Father sees those wounds, you're secure. The Holy Spirit of God it teaches us that in the Bible. So we thank God for the finished work of Christ. We also thank God for the unfinished work of Christ. Now, we've talked about the will of God and the work of Christ. I want you to look at verse 15. Whereof the Holy Ghost of the Holy Spirit also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before. A witness always says something. If he's a real witness, he says something. It's not a feeling, but it's some words. I was a witness once. I worked for my brother in an A&P store years ago, and there was a fellow by the name of Kendrick. He may be one of your relatives, I don't know. But he tried to murder my brother. And I was taken into court in Brockton, Massachusetts, and I guess they still have the record there, if they keep the records. But Emmanuel Rubin, the DA, put me on the witness stand, and I swore to tell the truth, and the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And then he asked me to give my witness. I said, you want me to give my witness? I feel it right now. I've heard people looking for a feeling, and they call that the witness of the Holy Spirit. No, it isn't that. Whereof the Holy Spirit has said something. What has he said? It's written in this book here. You won't think that I'm sacrilegious, I hope, when I tell you that I'm holding in my hands the witness of the Holy Spirit. It's right here. It never changes. You may wake up tomorrow morning with a torpid liver, or you may wake up with a severe headache, but this never changes. Your experiences vary, but this never changes. He has said something before. What has he said? This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. Now, about 20 minutes ago, so along in there, I asked you to remember something. Verse 3, that in those sacrifices, their remembrance again made of sins every year. But what is the witness of the Holy Spirit? Their sins and iniquities will I remember 
no more. It never changes. I see a little girl on the way to Sunday school. She has a little white testament that the Gideons have given her. She can read it backwards, forwards, inside out. Or she can't read it at all. But if I go over and say, may I see that little testament? And I take that in my hand and I turn to Hebrews 10, verse 17, and I read that right there. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Or if I go in the mall and see in a bookstore or a Bible lying there for sale, I can pick it up and I say, here is the witness of the Holy Spirit right in the middle of the mall. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. And so uh, this is the wit that you're holding it in your hands today, and it never changes. Did you ever hear Corrie Ten Boom? She was something else. She said, uh, God has taken our sins and iniquities and put them in the sea of his forgetfulness and then put up a sign, no fishing allowed. <laughs> so you don't honor God by bringing up your past, confessing your past. That's all been taken care of once and for all. I know people that like to look back at their rotten life, but that doesn't glorify God and it doesn't help you. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. No fishing allowed. So I hope that uh, this is a long weekend. It used to mean a lot to me when I was a kid because I used to carry the bass drum on Memorial Day and get $3 for it. The next year I played my horn and got $5. But uh, I'll tell you, I don't know what the young people do it anymore, but when the flag used to go by in those days, my heart beat a little bit faster to think that I was an American and that flag meant something to me. But I know that you're going to be busy today and tomorrow, but please find time, take time, make time to read this chapter. You will forget what I've said today, but if you'll only read it, it'll bring it right back to you. And I hope that you will do that.